Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 132, and we're going to talk about what van you should buy if you're looking for the most reliable van. That's right, that's our only criteria, reliability. We're also going to talk about flexible solar panels and what's changed over the years, a tale from the road involving a bulldozer, and a product review of a 12-volt power supply that I've been using a lot lately. Welcome back, puppy chickens! I, I've been waiting to say that for quite a while. I, I was uh, in high school. I had a biology teacher who was a little bit uh, flamboyant, maybe. And uh, yeah, he would call us puppy chickens, and no one ever found out why, and I'm still not sure. So now I've called you puppy chickens and the tradition continues. And you may carry that forth and call anyone you would like puppy chickens. How they react is, uh, I'm afraid, your problem. But we might as well get right into it here. This week, I've noticed that the market is finally changing. Vans are not selling as quickly as they were. Things are not back to normal. I'm not even getting there. If you're trying to buy a new van, you're probably going to have a long wait. But used vans and semi-built vans and that kind of thing, I'm noticing are staying on the market longer and they're not getting the prices they used to. So if you're looking at buying a van, it might be time to start dipping your toes in the water. And a lot of times with van life, people are, you know, building, they, they have these dreams of these massive rigs with four-wheel drive that can cross the Sahara and, you know, all this stuff all over them. And what if the thing you were most concerned about is reliability? That is just the ability of the van to keep going and a low cost of upkeep. I don't know that I've ever seen a video about this or heard anyone talk about it, so I figured I'll take a stab at it. And uh, so let's just do it. So if you want to get a van that is going to be reliable, there's two obvious things that you probably already know. You want to get the newest van you possibly can, and you want the one with the lowest miles. I mean, that's just true of any vehicle. Miles and years are what will eventually end your van's life. That's not any great earth-shattering thing. But the other part of that is, and probably the most important message of this little segment, is you want to get something simple. Simple is good. Now, my van is a 2011 Mercedes Sprinter, which is certainly not simple at all. But when I get into a modern van and look at the dashboard, I'm kind of blown away at how futuristic it is. It does a whole lot more than my fairly sophisticated van does. And while I'm like, oh man, I wish I had all this fun stuff, on the other hand, I'm like, all that stuff breaks. And this has always been true with vehicles. The more cool doodads you add to the thing, the more things are likely to break. Now, some of these things are worth having, in my opinion. For example, cruise control, I believe, is always worth having if you're going to be driving long distances, which many of us do. They, it prevents fatigue, it saves gas mileage, and I'm at the point now where I would go so far as to add an aftermarket cruise control if I had to, because I require it that much. My knees actually just can't handle holding the gas pedal down that long. So I'm not saying you want the most 
Spartan van possible, but you want things to be simple. And honestly, cruise control these days is pretty simple. You also want your van to run on gasoline. I did a, an episode a few weeks back about diesel and how, honestly, folks, it's time to give up on diesel. And that's always controversial. I know people love their diesel engines. Diesel engines last longer and they are more reliable in many cases. But at this point in reality, diesel fuel costs a lot more than gasoline. It's much harder to find. And if you do have a problem, it's much harder to find somebody to fix that problem and much more expensive. So it's it's a kind of a complicated thing. Are diesel engines less reliable than gasoline engines? Well, no. <laughs> in fact, I would say that diesel engines, all the DEF stuff aside are more reliable than gasoline, but in our current environment, with the way things are today, your van is going to be more reliable if it's gasoline. When you look for a gasoline van, look for an engine that requires regular old fuel, which is generally 87 octane. Most vans these days, 87 is fine for them. There are very few that want more than that, but make sure you know. I think the Mercedes Metris might ask for 91, which is just an extra expense for you. The reason they ask for higher octane is that they're higher compression engines, which means they give off more power for the size of the engine, which is all well and good, but what that translates to you is more money for gas, and you don't want to spend that so don't. Also, they can be less reliable. Higher compression engines are more sophisticated. They have more stuff going on with them, and avoid that if you can. Another thing to look at is, is the van still made? Now, I had my NV200, a great van and a van that I would call extremely reliable, but it's no longer made. So if I bought an NV200 today, you know, an old one, or a few years old, not even that old, and built it out, where would I get it serviced 10 years from now? Because while parts may still be available, those experts in the shops are going to be less familiar with them 10 years from now. And I certainly ran into that with the Tiki Bago, which is my 1973 Winnebago Indian nobody wants to work on that thing, even though it's super simple and nobody wants to work on it because, you know, they can't hook up the computer on it to see the codes because there ain't no computer. Four-wheel drive or two-wheel drive? Two-wheel drive. Why? Two-wheel drive is much more reliable than four-wheel drive because it's less complicated. Yeah, four-wheel drive is going to get you out of some situations and you may get less stuck with it, but it's heavy. It costs a lot more money. It wears tires faster and it uses more fuel and it can break. Four-wheel drive can actually be a detriment in some cases. Now, if you're somebody who's spending all your time off-road rock crawling, then yeah, four-wheel drive is a necessity for you. But for those of us who just think four-wheel drive would be a nice-to-have, consider it not being a nice-to-have because it's actually going to make your van less reliable. There's more stuff to go wrong, and that's what you're trying to avoid. It's also going to be a whole lot cheaper and easier to find one because the four-wheel drive vans are in high demand. Another non-obvious thing is that a low roof is going to increase reliability a little bit. Now, you might think, well, what's the difference? The answer is, is how the high roof is put on. In most vehicles, the high roof part isn't integral to the body. It's an add-on because they have a low roof version. So they add on that top part to make the van a high roof. And sometimes it's steel and sometimes it's fiberglass, but you're creating a whole bunch of seams there. And you're also creating height that can hit 
things. For example, I can't go through most drive throughs with my van, and if I forget that just once, well, I've smashed into something and then I can't use my van, thus it's less reliable. Let's talk about the wheels. Alloy rims, I've got them on my ambulance. I don't know why. I, I don't know why an ambulance needs alloy rims, but that's what they put on there. And yeah, they're pretty and they don't rust, but honestly, steel rims are better in many ways. They're easier to work on. They're easier to balance because you don't have to glue on weights. You can just clip them on and they're easier to fix. I mean, you can fix them. If you're going off road and you whack a rock and you bend your rim a little bit, well, in an emergency situation, you can fix that with a hammer or even a rock if you have to, at least sometimes. If you have an alloy rim and it hits that rock, it's literally going to break, and there's nothing you can do to fix that. So alloy rims, I don't think they have any advantage at all in vans, and honestly, I would recommend you do not get them if you want to increase reliability. I mean, if you think they look snazzy, you're going to get them anyway, but, you know, they do make your van less reliable. Another non-obvious thing is to look at the tire sizes. So my NV200, again, great fan. I loved my NV200, but it had a weird tire size. The tires for that van were basically just for that van, and they were hard to find. Like, I couldn't go to Costco and get them. And if I were in certain parts of the country, NV200s aren't very common, like in the Southwest. And if I blew out a tire down there, like ripped out the sidewall, and for some reason I couldn't use my spare... I would have a hard time finding a tire to replace it with, and therefore I would be stuck, therefore I would be less reliable. You can see that there's kind of a philosophy about what less reliable is. I'm not speaking specifically about technical things or the mechanics of the van. I'm talking about what's going to prevent you from going and doing your mission, which is why we're doing this, right? Now, as far as your build... You have total control over the simplicity of your build. I recommend everyone make down a list of what they need. Need, and then what they want. So what do you need? Okay, you need a place to sleep. You need a way to cook. You need a way to figure out the bathroom situation. And you probably needed some sort of power for lights or charge phones and whatever. I mean, those are your needs. Your wants could be hot water, a shower, a stereo, an awning, all those kind of things. And the fewer things you have in your van from the need side, the more reliable your van is going to be. But you can actually do things to increase reliability in your van, and that's by adding redundancy. Now, if you've ever watched my YouTube video that is a tour of my NV200, I show you all the backup systems I have. I kind of went crazy. In some cases, I had three backup systems. And that was to increase reliability. I was very concerned about being able to do what I wanted to do with that van on the timeline that I set. And I didn't want something like a dead battery to slow me down. So batteries is a good one. If you have one big battery, especially one that's an all-in-one power unit, like it has its the inverters included in it and all that stuff... Well, let's say one thing breaks in that, you've lost everything, and the only way you can fix it is to replace it. Whereas if you do, let's say you want 200 amp hours of power, well, consider getting two 100 amp hour batteries and wiring them in parallel. That means that if one of those batteries goes bad for some reason, you still have one that can keep you on the road. 
Keep that mindset for everything. For example, for cooking, I have propane installed in my ambulance now, and I have a built-in propane stove. Great, I have nothing to worry about, unless I run out of propane, or a rat chews through one of my hoses, or something else goes wrong. I still need a way to cook. So I also have a 12-volt kettle in a 12-volt oven. And I also have a sterno stove that I can always use to heat things up. And I've got matches. I've always got a way to accomplish what I'm going to do, even if I have to go through several layers of backup. So if you want a reliable van, keep it simple and then add backups. That's how you're going to keep on the road. And it's also probably going to save you money going forward. Tech Talk. It's been a while since we talked about flexible solar panels, and I get it. People love these things because they're thin and they're easy to install, though no one ever does it right, and they're stealthy. I mean, if you've got, like, say, a Dodge Caravan and it's a dark color, you can mount these in between the roof racks and no one will see them, and <laughs> you're seeing, and, and yeah, the, the truth is, even though these things have gotten better, and the prices have come down, they're still not the best way to do solar. Now, they can work. If you've got some kind of a build where you have to use a flexible panel, they can work. But they have a number of drawbacks. First is, they're expensive. Uh, they are much more expensive per watt than regular rigid solar panels. Second off, that they bend, but only a bit. I mean, you can't roll them up. They bend like 30 degrees before you start having problems. And if you bend them too far, you've ruined it. You'll hear a little snap and then a chip in there has broken and then that's useless. So they're not as sturdy in that way as a rigid panel. They're also less efficient. Per square inch, you get less power out of a flexible solar panel than you do a rigid one. And they have a problem with heat. So rigid panels are built in a frame, and th that frame separates the panel from your roof, if that's where you've mounted it. No matter what, even if you drilled that panel right to your roof, the frame of it would let some air get under the panel. With a flexible panel, it's usually sitting right on your roof. So the sun hits that panel, heats it up, and that heats up your roof. So that heat is getting into your vehicle somewhat, but it's also heating up the panel. And the hotter a panel is, the less efficient it is. Panels actually work really well in winter, despite the lower sun angle, because they're much more efficient. And perhaps the biggest problem with these panels is they don't last. They're very, very fragile, and there have been numerous cases of them delaminating or cracking or changing color or simply not working after a couple years. And that's a pretty hefty investment to just have disappear after a couple years. Now, there's a new problem with them, and that is I've noticed these scams. For example, I'm not going to link this, but on Amazon right now, there is a couple of 200-watt panels, flexible, that you can get for about 220 bucks. Now, that's a bargain. I mean, even for rigid panels, that's a bargain. But I don't believe it. If you look at the listing... The comments are all for slightly different products. The answered questions kind of don't make sense. And yeah, I, I don't believe it. And I, and I saw a few other listings like this. And I think that it's really just people pulling scams for solar panels. If you're not aware on Amazon, there's this common scam where someone will put an item up there, like something simple, sell it at a good price, 
get a whole bunch of reviews, and then change the item on that listing to something else that's much more expensive that is actually never going to be delivered. And while Amazon is pretty good about refunding money, if it's a marketplace item, it's more difficult, and sometimes you can get into trouble. So caveat emptor, beware, do your research, but only get flexible panels if it's the only way to get out there on the road. Uh, In general, a rigid panel is almost always going to be best, even if you're doing stealth, really. Tales from the road. So back when I was 18, I had a job as a truck driver. I would drive trucks. I drove a bunch of different trucks. Uh, not, Not a big rig kind of truck, but I could basically drive any two-axle vehicle. That's what my driver's license was for. And I ended up driving a very big truck. It was a Mitsubishi Fuso with a 26-foot box, which is about the biggest double-axle truck you can get. I mean, it's plenty big. And here I am, this 18-year-old kid, can't even drink, which is probably good. And I'm driving all over Massachusetts in this, this massive vehicle. I mean, I'd only been driving for two years at this point, and they're trusting me with this thing. (laughs) They also trusted me with a school bus, but that's another story. So I did run into problems sometimes. I did the classic mistake of pulling down an alley and finding out it was a dead end and then having to back out into traffic. That's always fun. One time on the interstate, it was bumper-to-bumper traffic, and somehow I ended up in a situation where the car in front of me, which was a foot from my bumper, was abandoned. The guy got out of the car and just left, and there I was in bumper-to-bumper traffic with one foot of clearance completely stuck. That was fun. But sometimes uh, there were creative solutions to these problems. So in this truck, what I was doing was delivering carpet, big rolls of carpet. They weighed, weighed about 750 pounds, and I was alone, and I had to somehow get this carpet out of my truck. I did not have an elevator. I had no power tools. I had me, a big long stick, and a rope. That's it. And the way we were told to get the carpet out of the truck was to stick the stick in one end of the carpet, one near the cab, and then tie a rope to it, and then tie that rope to a tree or something and drive. And hopefully it would pull it out of the truck. It seems crazy to me now, but that is literally what we did. And somehow I always made it work, with a couple of exceptions. There were definitely times I had to drive away and say, sorry, here's your carpet, I can't figure out how to get it off the truck. In this one case, I was going to a a housing development, brand new, all brand new houses, and they always had massive rolls of carpet because they were using a lot of it. And, you know, it's a new development, so the roads aren't really marked and things aren't clear. And I, I found a guy wearing a hard hat and a clipboard, and I figured, oh, he must be somebody important. And I said, hey, I've got a delivery for this address. I can't really find it. And he said, oh, no, it's right over there. Just pull up to the garage. And so, like, okay, easy, right? Well, I get to the house, and there's the garage, And in front of the garage is just dirt. They haven't put in the roads yet. But I'm like, well, I'm in this big truck. The ground clearance on this thing is measured in feet, not inches. So I'm not really worried about it that much. So they had a a lull on site, which is a a kind of an industrial forklift, a really big forklift that can go off-road. And they were able to get the carpet off with that, so I didn't have to worry about that part. And, you know, they sign the paper, I shut the door, get in, turn the key, and I'm like, bye. And I step on the gas, and it goes, and I'm like, "Uh uh-oh. 
and I step on the gas, well, right, the diesel, the gas pedal. I step on the accelerator again, and uh, yeah, the revs go up, and I go nowhere, and I have dug a big trench in front of this house. My back wheels are sunk, and my bumper is like about six inches off the dirt. And by bumper, I mean the ICC bar. (laughs) I know that if I, like, try to rock back and forth and screw up, I'm going to get that truck stuck. Like, really good. Because once that ICC bar hits the ground, then this is a digging problem. So one of the guys on site saw this was happening, and he said, Oh, oh, wait a minute, I can fix this. And I'm like, okay, so what are you going to do to fix this? And, you know, I'm 18 years old, so I'm figuring, well, maybe this guy knows a trick. Well, he jumps out of his pickup truck and then runs over to another vehicle, which happened to be a bulldozer. That's right. He was going to fix my truck with the bulldozer, and I thought, oh, he's just going to pull me out. I mean, the bulldozer's not going to stop. But no, no, he was much more creative than that. He built me a road. (laughs) He took the bulldozer and made a road in front of the truck because he figured even if he got me out, I would probably get stuck again. And so... I had this guy custom make me a road with a bulldozer, and then he pulled me out, but he only had to pull me out a little bit, and I simply drove off, and then he finished the road after I left, and that road is probably still there today. The people who bought that house have no idea that I was instrumental in getting their driveway built. (laughs) Just one of those little things that happens while you're out on the road that will not happen if you're sitting on your couch in your living room, hopefully. Product review. I bought this thing a while ago. I think I've actually talked about it before, but I've been using it a lot lately. And I thought, you know, if if you're one of the people who likes to tinker a lot and figure things out and have flexibility, this is something you should look into. It is a 12-volt power supply, but it's, it's for a bench. You wouldn't necessarily have this in your van, although you could. So this thing is, it's an adjustable DC power supply. In my case, it's a blue box. I mean, they come in all different sizes and colors. But it's a blue box that you basically can use to test and power anything that's 12 volts, so long as it's less than 10 amps. In fact, it'll actually go up to 30 volts. So it has knobs on it that allow you to adjust this, and it lets you do all kinds of testing and even charging batteries and things like that. And I've used this for all kinds of things. For example, when I was doing the video review of my refrigerator, I actually hooked it up to this power supply so I could see how many amps and watts it drew. Because it has three lines of display that show the voltage, the amps, and voltage times amps is watts. You can also limit the amps. For example, I can set the amps at like two amps, and then I could see if that was enough to power something. It's come in handy a lot, and it just came in handy today because my 200-amp-hour Renogy battery came, and I'm not able to get to the van right away. Now, the Renogy battery came, and it was only 37% charged, and I was like, well, I might as well charge it, and I'm actually charging it with this 12-volt power supply. Now, I'm charging it very, very slowly. I'm only giving it 5 amps. It's basically a trickle charge, but it works, and I'm able to do this just fine simply because I have this device. Now, the device is $79.99 right now. It's it's not incredibly cheap, but if you're going to be doing things like building your own batteries or bench testing anything... This is so handy just to have a place to plug something in 12 volts in your house. And it is completely controllable. You can set the voltage and amps. Like, for example, 
I'm charging my lithium iron phosphate battery at 14.8 volts because I know it can handle that. Whereas a normal 12 volt power supply would only just give out 12 volts. This thing gives out 14.8 volts exactly because that's where I set it. So it's an interesting thing to have. I really do enjoy it. And heck, it has a USB phone charger built into it because what doesn't these days? The one I have is made by a company called Hanmatic. It's the HM310. I will have a link in the show notes to that one. And uh, I recommend this one. I mean, the others are probably fine, but this one has been great. And I really like that it has a very flexible way to hook up cables to it. It has screw clamps, so you can put anything on there. And it also has holes for banana clips. And it comes with these cables. So you can basically hook up anything to it. And I bought a regular cigarette lighter socket that screws into this and that basically duplicates my van, whether the van is off or on or whatever. So check it out. If it's something that sounds like it would be good to you, check out the link. And uh, I've been very, very happy with it. A place to visit. A while back, I did a project where I had you guys tell me where to go. I basically uh, went out in the van and then sent surveys out on social media and said, do this, you know, do you want me to do this? Do you want me to do that? Do you want me to do this? And um, you guys actually made me go to a place called the Devil's Icebox. And uh, it's pretty cool place. I think, uh, especially with the temperatures the way they are now, it might be worth visiting because it's named that for a reason. It's much colder there. <laughs> so Devil's Icebox is at Rock Bridge Memorial State Park in Missouri. And that's pretty much in Columbia. It's near Columbia anyway. It's a, it's a nice natural area with lots of hiking and lots of nice stuff to see. But it has a number of caves, some of which are very big and some of which are very accessible. Uh, one of the big caves you see like right away, it's maybe 200 yards from the parking lot, is this massive one with a river flowing through it. And you can actually walk up the river and be in the cave. And you know, there are bats in there. I mean, you can see them. It's, it's just a nice spot to be. But Devil's Icebox is called that because it has had ice in it at times in the summer. And it's a little bit of a sinkhole. If you go into this park, in the middle, there's the staircase and you go all the way down and then there's a cave that you can go into and it's, it's kind of like the size of a cabin. You can actually go in there and sit on the rocks and it could be in the 50s down there regardless of the temperature outside, hence the name Devil's Icebox. I actually, when I went last year... It was really hot and humid out, and it was really nice to get in there and just hang out. And a lot of people did that. Now, for the truly adventurous, you can go much deeper into the cave. Now, this is not a commercial cave. There's no lights. If you're going to go any deeper than the entrance, you're going to have to bring your own lights, and you're going to have to do some crawling and actual spelunking. So be prepared for that. But if you're just a casual cave visitor as I am, This place is fine. The big cave is super easy. Anybody can do that. And this other cave, you can get into enough to have the experience. You don't have to go all the way in. And I think it actually goes in about a mile. It's a fairly extensive cave system. That's Devil's Ice Box in Columbia, Missouri. I'll have a link in the show notes for Rockbridge Memorial State Park, which is where this place is. Resource Recommendation So USB-C is here to save us all. Eventually, we're all going to be using USB-C for everything, and you won't have to carry four or seven or nine different cables with you. Currently, I have devices that I carry with me all the time that use USB mini, 
USB micro, USB A, USB C, and sometimes the ends don't match because I have USB A and USB C on one end and I need the other. And I've ended up carrying adapters around. And to top it all off, it turns out that not all USB C cables are made equally, and some can handle high charge, and some can't, and some can handle data, and some can't. And I am sick of it. Why, why, why do we have to have so many blasted? cables and plus i have an iphone that with a lightning cable so that's something completely different my ipad has USB-C, so even my apple device anyway <clears throat> rant over i do have something that will help you with this and no it's not a cable with 16 different things on it which do exist no this is just a website that helps explain all the different kinds of cables so that when you uh, go to buy a cable you know what you're getting for example you know you're getting a USB-C cable that will actually power your MacBook Pro because not all of them will. And this is at a site called rsonline.com. That's rs-online.com. Now, this is actually a UK company that makes cables and all kinds of switches and nuts and bolts. And you actually might find other stuff on here that's useful too. But the part I care about is the actual cable guide. And it's very detailed. If you don't know about this stuff, it's well worth reading. For example, it starts with the basics. What is a USB cable? USB stands for universal serial bus, etc., etc. And it goes on and on. It explains what USB-A is and USB-C. And it also will tell you what USB-B is, which is actually what you use for printers. It's the only thing that uses them now that I'm aware of. It explains how they work and why they're good. And then, most important, it talks about the protocols of USB because USB is actually a protocol and every version of this from 1.1 to 3.1 increased speed. So a USB 1.1 device, which is like the oldest type of cable, that will do 12 megabits per second. But a USB 3.1, the new ones, will do 10 gigabits per second. You can see that that's a big difference. And this is where we get into trouble with charging. So this site actually explains it all. It even has lightning on here, and it has all the different combinations of things. And it explains this new thing that I have just encountered called OTG, which is USB on the go, that allows two cables to connect to each other so that one can power the other. This is a whole new thing. Apples kind of do this, where you can plug your iPhone into your iPad, and your iPad will charge your iPhone, or vice versa. It Whichever gets plugged in first wins. I don't know, but it is well worth checking this out. You may learn something even if you're an expert on USB cables. For example, did you know that the colors on the cables matter? Not not the cable, but the, the jacks. Like a blue jack is different than a black jack. White is 1.0, black is 2.0, and blue is 3.0. So you want blue. If you, you could do it this way. White is slow, black is okay, and blue is fast. That's a better way to do it. Anyway, that is at... It's actually, the URL is quite long. I'll have a link in the show notes, but I'm going to say it here just one time. Now, it's too long to even say in this podcast. It's really a ridiculous URL. I wish they would fix that because this is a great resource. But I will have a link in the show notes, and that should help you out. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to episode 132. It was kind of a weird episode this week, and it's been late, and I've been working on other stuff. So I appreciate you sticking it out with me. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And if you need to get a hold of me, I am Jeff at builttogo.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. 
And until next time, remember the words of Stacy Westfall. Sometimes you find yourself in the middle of nowhere, and sometimes in the middle of nowhere you find yourself. <laughs>